There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Hello everyone, welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast, the second in July actually, because if you remember a few weeks ago we were at the Red Bull factory in Milton Keynes and we'll be talking, we'll be referring back to that podcast in a few moments time. We do have team orders here, oh yes, if I get a message in my headphones today telling me to shut up and let Nigel Roebuck speak, I will shut up. Now, team orders obviously is a topical thing at the moment, and uh, we will be having a look at uh, what happened at Hockenheim uh, during this show today, I can assure you. Should Ferrari have let Alonso through? Did they get off lightly with a $100,000 fine? Stuff like that. We'll take uh, some of your questions, which uh, many of which we've received for today's podcast, and we'll be looking at what's in the upcoming edition of Motorsport magazine. Nigel, first, let's deal with the uh, Red Bull situation because it's where we started podcasting at the beginning of this month and you asked Christian Horner uh, whether or not the team favoured Sebastian Vettel. He said categorically they did not. A few days later, he had the only new front wing at Silverstone. What is going on here? Well, in fact, at Silverstone, the circumstances were but there was a new, there was a new front wing um, and there was time enough to manufacture only two, so they arrived at Silverstone with you know with one each. Then on Saturday morning, Vettel had a problem with his. You remember it was it yep. collapsed. You remember the shot of him going down the hangar straight. So that was the end of that. So now there was only one new front front wing, and at the time, of course, it was on Weber's car. Um, and then qualifying in the afternoon the wing was taken off Weber's car and put onto Vettel's and you know we all remember Mark's stone face you know at the press conference afterwards Vettel got pole Mark was second um, I, I confess I mean I was um, I was amazed by what happened uh, there was some sort of suggestion that well it wasn't really much better than the, than the, the previous wing but you know, if such were the case, then you know why was it why was it moved from one car to another? Um, the argument put forward was that Vettel was ahead in the championship, uh, and therefore you know that that gave him precedence. It was nothing to do with favoritism, innate favoritism towards Vettel. Um, and you know that may or not be the case. What still struck me as astonishing was that that, that they did it. Yes. Because it was bad luck on Vettel when you know when the, when his wing um, collapsed, no question. But you know these things happen in motor racing; always have. Um, and I, I I just can't imagine what they thought or how they thought Mark would react. You know when he when he when he knew. 
Um, yep. And they'd gone to such lengths to try and bury the Istanbul thing and, and sort of say, no, 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 it's, it's, you know, the boys are on good terms again now. There is, there's no favouritism towards anybody. Let's get on with the season. And in that context, I thought it was a simply extraordinary thing to do because Mark's reaction might have been guaranteed. But what, what I found <coughs> interesting was that by, by the sounds of things, they didn't actually talk to Mark much about it beforehand. No. And it was sort of done slightly underhand, and I think that just made it even worse. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. obviously he was going to find out. And I yeah. don't know how they ever thought that was a good idea, I, I just don't know. No, no. Seems like a classic case of miscommunication. I think, uh, you know, Christian, I think we all admire the way he's managed Red Bull over the last couple of years. Um, but I think he did cock up on this occasion, I have to say. I think, you know, he really should have made sure that Mark was fully aware that apparently the driver with the most points in the championship gets priority over new parts. Um, and I think if he'd, if that had been made clear to Mark before the weekend, you wouldn't have had this problem. Yeah. But making that decision, uh, I mean, the story I heard was that, you know, um, Mark's engineer suddenly found the front wing had been taken off the car and had an argument with Vettel's chief engineer about about it because he he hadn't been told himself. So mm. it it sounds like mm. a, a real inter-team, intra-team mm. mess that um, uh, just shouldn't have happened. And I, I suspect they'll they'll make sure it doesn't happen again now. But um, it's a very very juicy uh, rivalry between those two, isn't it now? And I think the thing is that's really is ha- is half the problem. The way it was done. Um, suggests that there is something, you know, that there is something going on behind the scenes that they that sort of kept under wraps and, and so on. Mm. It just fosters the belief that, well, you know, that, that Vettel is favoured. Now, I, I mean, I think, you know, Mataschitz came out with a, a statement after Silverstone, um, which was good, essentially saying, listen, I don't care who wins the world championship as long as one of them does, and that's, that's the end of it. Um, and that is on record now. Um, but again, you know, Matashitz is... Uh, I know he owns the whole lot, but I, that doesn't mean... I think not necessarily everybody in the same team shares that that sentiment. Uh, one I feel I'm sorry for Christian. I think he's in a very, very difficult position trying to juggle, juggle things. One thing I don't think uh, we've, we've ever really got to the bottom of is how much influence someone like Helmut Marko has. Is he undermining Christian? Does You know, he's he's... Dietrich Mateschitz is right-hand guy. Um, he advises him on all matters to do with young drivers. You know, Vettel is one of the Red Bull development drivers who's come through and, and been very successful. So naturally, he's going to favour him over someone like Mark Webber, who is, you know, yeah. established long before he joined Red Bull. You would think so, yeah. Is is he pulling some strings there? Is he having an influence? We we don't really know. Mateschitz doesn't like being interviewed. I've never really read a decent interview with him, with anyone. Well, we'll um, have to put that right, won't we? Well, we'd l- I'd love to, yeah. It, but getting to him is really hard. He just mm. doesn't, he's not interested in talking to the media. Mm. He's created his own media, hasn't he, really, you know, with his own Red Bulletin magazine, <coughs> etc. So um, the dynamics there are very tough for, for, for Christian Horner, I think, you know, to, to manage that team yeah. with someone else there in the, in the shadows kind of talking to the owner. Mm. Uh, and it is the owner's... Plaything really, it's his, it's his, it's his team, mm. his projects. You know, so it's a it's a difficult situation. But I think I don't think Christian personally, I find hard to believe would favour Mark or Sebastian. Yeah, no, no, me too. Me okay, too. well, I mean, no, the answer really here is that we don't know exactly what's going on, and nor apparently does anybody else apart from the people involved. But it, in a way, though, it was a bit of a double whammy, wasn't it? Because 
they have now put themselves in a position where they're going to have to favour whoever's ahead in the championship. So should that be Mark Webber in the months to come, they will have to do that now, won't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, absolutely. But it could it could switch from race to race because it's the points are so close. So yeah. one weekend marks ahead, and yeah. so he gets favoured, and next weekend it's. I was actually so. at the weekend after the Ferrari thing. Christian actually came out quite strongly um, against Ferrari and against team orders and all the rest of it. Um, but I did think, well, what you know, later in the year, if we get to a situation where only one Red Bull driver can win the world championship. And it'll be, it, you know, the teams can argue about it until they're blue in the face. When it gets to that stage, they will all sure. favour whichever yep. driver is still in the hunt. Yeah. But it's amazing how many... Uh, and, you know, it'll be just as difficult for Christian as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing after this Ferrari thing how many sort of other team owners and people associated with other teams have suddenly got their high horse and yep. slammed oh. Ferrari did when, well, you know, yes, they just... Yes. They make it. They do it, but it's just a bit more subtle, I think. Yes. Okay, well, here we go. Here we go, then. We're into team orders. Uh, didn't take us long, did it? Um, <laughs> and we've all, we'll all have a view. Nigel, um, you'll definitely have a view. Um, <clears throat> well, I don't have any problem with team orders, per se, because um, all my life I've been besotted with motor racing, and all my life I remember team orders. Um, yep. It doesn't you know you can you can go back you, if you want to you can go back you know if you look at if you read about uh, Grand Prix racing in the thirties yep. you know team orders were absolutely you know implicit absolutely um, and Mercedes for example all the way through have always always um, you know had a culture of team orders sure. um, I mean there was a classic example in 1954 when they came back um, Fangio won all the races uh, except for there was a non-championship race at Arvus in Berlin it was the Grand Prix of Berlin it was of no consequence whatever mm. uh, and lo and behold Carl Kling won it mm. Fangio was second now normally you know, Carl Kling couldn't shake a stick at Fangio but that day, of course, it was it was good marketing. It was and everything else. Yep. You know, it was in Germany, and German driver wins. I guess what's so so the, so the concept of team orders in it, you know, is, is is anything but new. That's what I'm saying, and I think teams should be allowed to run their their teams as they see fit. Um, in that case, they I, of have course, to ideally, the rule, we, we like to see drivers racing each other. Yeah. Of course, we do. Um, but I think I mean, what really struck me at the weekend was people were comparing what happened on Sunday with what happened in Austria in O2, which I just thought was farcical, frankly. I mean, what happened in uh, in Austria was 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 an insult to the sport. Yeah. Barrichello had dominated qualifying, dominated the race. Um, Michael Schumacher at the time had an enormous lead in the World Championship, and really didn't need those desperate no. extra points um, and I thought that was and to stop Rubens on the last lap I mean, I mean he literally almost parked sure. wait, waiting for Michael yeah. to catch up yeah. right in front of the main grandstand was pit straight last lap yeah. it, was, it was an insult it was insulting to any, everybody, everybody there yeah. but I think, what, I think what happened on Sunday I mean I didn't like to see it at all but I think um, I, I was, what struck me was how unsubtle it was because you know it's rife whether we whether other teams care to admit it or not 
Um, usually it's done, you know, under the pretext of something else. I think you might be getting a bit marginal on fuel. I think you better turn your engine down. Oh, somebody's caught you. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So I think it was, it was not, it certainly wasn't well done, and it looked cack-handed, and, you know, the whole press room groaned when it happened. Mm. Not surprisingly, and I don't, I don't care to see it. But I still think the fundamental problem that needs facing in Formula One is that, uh, you know, Alonso was patently faster than Massa at Hockenheim. I mean, he outqualified him half a second. He, he was fastest in both practice sessions. Uh, but because of being run over to the pit wall by Vettel away from the start, and so he and Vettel were wasting time, allowing Felipe to yeah. sneak past, which he did beautifully. Yeah. Um, Alonso behind Vettel now, uh, behind uh, Massa now, and although he's inherently a quicker driver uh, in equal cars, he could have, he, he, you know, they could be running now and he would still be behind yeah. Felipe. Yeah. They've got to sort out overtaking, haven't they, Damien? I mean, surely the root of all this is that you can't overtake in Formula One racing. I mean, otherwise Alonso would have overtaken him. Yeah, I think I agree completely with Nigel. We had, a, we had a chat on the phone on Monday after the race, and that's the th- conclusion we came to, is that the, the point here is the faster guy couldn't get past the slower guy, and um, Ferrari were left really with no choice but to put you know uh, this, the order in. Uh, I, it was done very clumsily. I groaned along with everyone else when it mm. happened, and just think this is, you know, because it makes the sport look farcical, yep. fixed, all the, all the stuff that gets thrown at it in these occasions. Um, and, uh, you know, you can logically explain why Ferrari had to do it, and you can't argue with it. But essentially, it's a flawed sport. Because well, the because rule is wrong, isn't it? Well, the, the, ru- the, 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 wrong, yeah. the thing is, the rule came in only because of what Jean Tot did as Ferrari yeah. sporting director in Austria. Yeah, but um, I, I think the, the, key, the key thing here is, is the disrepute thing rather than they should scrap the team orders rule yeah because it's a nonsense mm-hmm. you, you can't you can't rule on team orders because every team does yeah. it yeah. more su- some more subtly than others as we've seen but um it's bringing the sport into disrepute i think is the, is the key thing which was what uh, ferrari were guilty of in 2002 yeah. and i'd say they were guilty of it in this occasion mm-hmm. um because the way they did it was so crass mm. Um, it just brings uh, ridicule on the sport, and that for me was 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 their only um, mm. fault. And I think the fine that they got, they deserved that fine for for, for that for their actions for that, but not for the team orders. No, and I think as long as there's sorry, as, oh, just a little thing, as long as there's radio contact, you know, which which is audible to the the audience mm-hmm. between the driver and the uh, and the pit. Um, uh, yeah, perhaps Ferrari need to introduce certain subtleties which won't appearance on uh, on yeah, Sunday you know, and perhaps code things a little more carefully as as as, uh, as others do sure um, I, yeah I mean I'm really against it I have to say I mean a bit more than against some the rule or yeah no the, uh, it's what Ferrari did um, you know okay fine they want to do that for their world championship but you know we've had so many messages of people writing and saying look I paid over a thousand euros to get to that race and watch it I didn't see a race, I saw an orchestrated finish when, okay, Alonso was quicker, and he was quicker, as Nigel said, in qualifying and the race, but, but Massa took his chance, that's racing. You know, the, not always a dri- oh, the quickest driver wins. Um, and I thought it was a really nice story for Massa to, you know, he could have won yeah. on the year, the year after his accident. 
And, uh, you know, he's had a difficult season this year because, you know, Alonso's arrived and just pounced on him as he usually does. Um, so I think there is something to be said for, you know, the people watching have got to see a race. And whether that means you have even more underhanded sort of dealings with radio transmissions mm. and coded messages and, you know, turn down the fuel, mm. I don't know. But I, I think yeah. if we ban the rule outright and, you know, the people watching the Grand Prix here... I'm afraid you've got to let your teammate pass. Actually, They're going to hate it. When you think about it, we're, we're sitting here advocating the teams being more underhand about how they... Yeah, I know. It's wrong, isn't it? It's, it's ridiculous. It's yeah, really I mean, I, mean, I, mean that, that, I think, I tell you, yeah, I think what team orders, the, the, the rule about team orders has done is just drive everything underground, as they say. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Christ, it's happened as long as I can remember. Sure, but... It, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, let's not forget, you know, DC at any opportunity yeah. still talks about it that, you know, the two times he was ordered to, to, let, to let Mika pass. Every yeah. year for donkeys. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not just Ferrari, that's for sure. No, surely, absolutely not. Surely the bottom line of this is that they can't overtake each other. Yeah. I know I've said this no, before, but it seems to me that unless they sort this out, they're going to have problems forever and a day because how else do you get your number one in presumably Alonso is the number one driver presumably Massa's new contract is to be number two driver I don't know I'm just assuming that so how do you get the guy past well I don't think it's a number I don't I don't think Fernando's a number one driver in the sense that Schumacher was Um, again back to DC recently you know he he said in one of the broadcasts he was he had a firm offer from Ferrari at one stage um, and rejected it because he Mm. was it was unequivocally as number two and to do mm. Schumacher's bidding. Mm. Mm. So that, that was very... I don't think it's at all it's like that now. I think Ferrari's policy fundamentally is the, you know, the number one driver is he who is quicker. One thing that it did interest me greatly, I don't, I'd, I'd like to know if it did you guys as well, is that the game was really given away by Rob Smedley who let emotions get the better of him by saying the message in the way that he said it and mm. then saying sorry because mm-hmm. clearly he's very fond of Felipe Massa mm. and vice versa mm. so in a way that was it was his delivery that made it all so obvious. It was, I mean also the way the Massa came out of the hairpin like you could hear he was changing up but you know a third yeah. sort of, you know half yeah. revs and he yeah. you know Felipe didn't help at all okay Rob's message was you know was pretty pretty clear, but that's always been the way, isn't it? The, tr- yeah. the driver who's giving up the yeah. position well, never yeah. always makes it look obvious to say, "Look what I'm doing." I'm yeah, giving and, and, and who it's human nature. Them. Who can blame Absolute them? Human yeah. nature. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, no, DC's no. example in Melbourne that year. Yeah, well, yeah, he did it on the pit straight in front yeah. of the, <laughs> the main yeah. grandstand, yeah. just just to rub it in, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, perhaps we should let's move on. Um, uh, <laughs> he says, "Let's move on to what?" Yeah, I know, I know to what. Um, we're more than halfway through the year, and Schumacher is not delivering Nigel Roebuck. Uh, it's not really a matter of, you know, he's going to do it next weekend anymore, is it? Um, I think it's doubtful. I mean, I, I, was, I must say I was very intrigued before last weekend <coughs> to see, you know, if he could pull something out of the hat, you know, before his home crowd. Um, and there wasn't really any, you know, any any sign of that. I mean, Mercedes, they they were pretty good in practice on Friday, both both of them, um, and they were then very disappointed in qualifying. They were, I think, they were sort of expecting probably to qualify fifth or sixth, that sort of thing. So the fact that you know Nico scraped into um, into Q3 and Michael didn't. 
uh, it was strange. I mean, I've been to Hockenheim countless times, and countless times been there when you know when the entire grandstand was scarlet, and everybody had a decra, a red yeah, decra yeah, cap, yeah. And, and everything else. Um, and I was quite uh, taken aback by the fact that fundamentally, when I was I went for a wander around to the museum and so on. Uh, the great majority of people when they were not wearing grey Mercedes uh, no. Schumacher. They were Vettel. Yeah, they were. It was Red Bull. Liveried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, the, I mean, <coughs> life life moves on, doesn't it? And I, I I I don't really know what to make of it, Rob. I mean, he's he's adamant he is going to continue next year, um, and so he must believe that yeah. you know things will improve and so on. But he. On Friday afternoon at Hockenheim, the, in the press conference, Norbert Haug was asked a question about essentially when is Michael going to deliver or is he going to deliver? And, and Norbert has done this countless times. There's another impassioned defence of Michael. And, oh, it's not our fault. It's, it's not his fault. It's a car and all that. Ross, ten years ago, nine years ago, when I interviewed Ross, and I said to him, what is it about Michael that's just different from the rest? And he said, it's what Michael can do when the car isn't right. Uh, Now, the abiding defense all year long is that the car isn't right, the car doesn't suit him. So, you know, go figure. You can't have it both ways. Well, it's yet another great story in a great season, isn't it, Damien? Yep, it sure is. Um, I mean, talking about Schumacher, his legacy was there to see on on Sunday at the start, wasn't it, with Vettel's uh, chop over Alonso, you know, um, yeah. that that has come purely from the tactics that Michael used for years, and Sebastian just reminds me so much of a, of a young Michael Schumacher. Yeah. Um, and I think personally that uh, the next GPDA meeting they should be uh, all having a word with him because that's got to stop. And it, it, he's not the only person who does it. I've seen Weber's done it in the past as it well. It was marginal, um, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was more than marginal, I'd say. Uh, and also, it 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 was uh, it gave an open goal to to Massa because yeah, if he hadn't spent so much time going to the right trying to block Alonso, Massa wouldn't have had such an easy run through the corner. As it was, Massa still ran wide. Mm. So mm. if if yeah. Vettel had still been in, in where he should have been, Massa probably wouldn't have taken the lead. Alonso probably would have held on to second place, and we would have had the whole Ferrari team orders thing. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, Vettel was way over the line at the start. It's not the first time he's done it either. I mean, you know, he's it's just glimpses of it all the way through the season. Yeah, and for a potential it's true. World he, did, he did it at Silverstone, mm. to, you know, to Mark, and he really should have known. If there are two guys who are not going to be intimidated, they're Weber and Alonso. So you know, yeah. it's a waste of time. But what strikes me is, that on both occasions, you know, they could so easily have been a touch, or one of them, you know, the guy being edged over could have hit the pit wall and whatever. And you know, they're right at the front of the grid, and then you've got a massive. You know, start yeah. line accident. I mean, what's always sort of quite interesting is, you know, he's he's never sort of pulled up for these manoeuvres. But if something like that did happen, then everyone would come down with a sledgehammer. Yes. And you know, it's, it seems to have, we have to wait until something does go wrong until, you know, someone yeah. actually comments on it. Or I mean, I'm amazed the stewards didn't pick up on it. To be fair, because they're yeah. usually pretty quick on anything like that. Well, uh, Nigel and I were talking on the phone um, on Monday, and, and we talked about Helio Castroneves in the IndyCar race. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, and he basically got a, a penalty uh, for, for blocking his teammate, uh, Will Power. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And because of the penalty, he didn't take the penalty, and he was knocked back after the race and lost a win. Knocked back to 10th place for a, um, a so-called block, which was nowhere near as severe as Sebastian Vettel's at the start of the Grand Prix. So, you know, two completely different uh, yeah. s- standards being set there um, in, in obviously two different series. But um, I think Formula One, they, they have a real problem at the moment with this, with this blocking thing. And you know, there's always been this sort of rule about one, one move on the straight. And, you know, Lewis um, got in trouble earlier in the year for, for the Malaysia thing, which was ridiculous with him weaving across the circuit. But he wasn't blocking. He was just trying to break the toe. I think the drivers just should know better. I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, agree. We, we've got to be careful because, you know, two years ago we were saying that we live in a nanny state and the stewards have got to calm down and let people race. So, yeah. I mean, it's, we've got to be yeah, no, clear that we want a sort of middle line. It's, absolutely. You know, we don't want to go back to that. No, no, no. But I, I think, I mean, I, I actually mentioned it in the column in the magazine that right after Montreal, after the race, um, I ran into Derek Daly, who'd ceased out Formula One pretty rarely these days um, still loves it but he said Jesus Christ don't you guys don't you want overtaking in Formula 1 well yeah we do want it because he said I, I, the things I've seen today you know um, particularly he said yeah. you know uh, uh, the, and he said actually the two worst were a rookie Hulkenberg and yeah. Michael Schumacher yeah. and he said you know it's, it's as if uh, you know, this is just discouraging Everybody moans about no overtaking, and yet this one move you're allowed to chop, yeah. you know, yeah. remains. It's inter- interesting. Gordon Kirby's written a column for the October issue, which came in yesterday, um, talking about NASCAR and how uh, Jimmy Johnson's basically saying there's only a couple of drivers that he can completely trust in NASCAR now. Um, that you know, it's 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 spreading everywhere. It's mm. not just in Formula mm-hmm. One. Um, and you can you can date it all the way back to Ayrton Senna yep. and the manoeuvres he put on Prost and all the rest of it, and then the Michael Schumacher years as well. Yep. Um, and we all want to see hard racing and we all want to see overtaking, but I, I think they're all overstepping the line. And it's about time the drivers actually took responsibility for it. I think and actually got together and and were honest with each other. Mm. Um, and you know something's got to change and it's a shame that it would be a shame if regulations need to come in I don't think a lot I think too many regulations are brought in and it's you know there's a narrow parameter and there's always grey areas you know is it one move or two moves sure. or whatever uh, the, the drivers need to take responsibility themselves mm, I agree okay 
Um, it's getting pretty noisy in here, isn't it? We've got we <laughs> cargo barges up and down the river outside, helicopters, it's all happening. It's a working river, Rob. It's a working river. It's a work in progress. There, there's a good phrase. Oh, that's a new Labour phrase, isn't it? Or was. <laughs> um, let's talk briefly about Kamui Kobayashi, because uh, Sean Martin, one of our readers, at least I hope he is, or certainly one of our listeners, um, wants to know whether we've seen enough, enough of Kobayashi to say, is he... Is he really this good or not? And I'm a bit of a fan of Kobayashi. What do you What do you reckon, Nigel? Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I I I, I was hugely impressed by the couple of drives he had in the Toyota at the end of last year. Yeah. As much as anything, uh, you know, in, in Abu Dhabi when he was, I mean, he battled briefly with Jensen, if you remember. So I was I was very impressed by the fact he just wasn't overawed by anybody. Um, and then this season started, and I confess, I sort of thought, well. People were sort of saying, I wonder if Toyota gave him something a little bit special, mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, Japanese driver in the last couple of races yeah. and we were pulling out and everything else. And it was a long time before the Sauber, you know, looked anything like. It tested well, as cars sometimes do. Uh, but in the races, it was, it was way off the pace, and he wasn't really doing much. Mm. Um, and he, he's made some silly mistakes. I mean, Montreal, you know, at the end of the first lap, he stuffed it yeah. into the wall. But I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I think the guy's quick. I do think he's, I do think he's quick. I think, I, you know, I mean, for that matter, I mean, I know Sato, you know, had his days when he was, when he was, when he was yes. quick. But, um, you know, Kobayashi, in, uh, I thought, drove a hell of a good race in Valencia. Yeah. for instance. They're interesting Japanese yeah. drivers though, aren't they? Because the, every now and then we think, here comes the first Japanese superstar and then... Mm. Yeah, and it never happens. Yeah, we, it's happened so many times. I mean, you look back and uh, we, we tend to group the Japanese drivers together as a nationality just because they, they all have similar characteristics in the sense that you know, Katayama and Sato are two that always spring to mind. Really, on their day, it could be very exciting, mm. very brave, uh, complete commitment um, and never quite delivered what they promised. You know, um, Katiyama, there were flashes of brilliance in the Tyrrell, but he never, never really lived up to it, never, never quite had a, enough to, to put results together. Didn't really have the cars, to be fair to him. But, and Sato was the one that we always thought possibly could be the one that would break through. Yeah, it, you know, it looked Even momentarily Nakajima, you know, uh, same thing. I mean, yeah. Williams were really high on, on Nakajima for a, for a while. Yeah. Um, but... Mm. Okay, um, we've got. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, we have a record number of questions from from you, the readers, um, and we're not getting through them very quickly, as usual. It's all a bit. Well, let's shut up and ask. Do some questions then. Go on. Okay. Well, I was just about to do that. Okay. Good. So. Well done, Rob. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I told Carry you. The, on. I told you the call would come. There you are. <laughs> team orders. A clear case of team orders. Yeah. There was no hidden message there, was there, Rob? No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Quite right, too. Um, A question from Rob Elwell about the uh, new rules for 2013. Smaller turbocharged engines in Formula One. Um, Ed? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we sort of know exactly what we're going to get yet. Um, You know, the rules certainly aren't concrete. Um, Well, you know, what size the engines are going to be and what layout and things. But obviously, I think the turbo is the way to go. And that's definitely what the manufacturers want. Um, I went over to Volkswagen a few months ago and uh, speaking to a few people there, and you know they're watching the rules really closely because 
you know, if, if they could run a two-liter turbo, it relates directly to their road cars, and they would be, you know, pretty keen on the whole idea. But you know, before we get too excited, I don't think it's going to be anything like the 80s and the sort of the huge power you got there and the sort of the excitement of these cars sliding about. And, you know, I think technology's moved on far too far for that. But, uh, dear, well, we can only hope. OK. Damien, um, question for the editor, I think. What do we think about teams using so-called filming days to test new parts for the cars? These are the Grand Prix teams. And uh, Martin Whitmarsh, of course, refuses to use that loophole to test McLaren parts, apparently. Um, do you have a view on this whole, the whole ban on testing, which again is leading to potentially undercover tactics? Yeah, if it's a loophole, close it, I would say. No testing means no testing. And um, it's uh, a grey area, and it doesn't need to be there. So I think um, uh, let, let's lose it. Nigel, do you have a, do you have a, I mean, should testing be reintroduced or is the ban the right thing to do? Well, I think as long as there is a ban, it should be a ban. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, it didn't surprise me a great deal when, you know, when, I, when I heard about this because, you know, F1 mentality generally is such that, you know, if there is any sort of uh, little loophole they can exploit, they will. Not all of them, of course, but some. Um, I kind of in sort of coming to the view that maybe we should have um, and sort of next week after Hungary would be a would be a good moment perhaps maybe a single mid-season test where all the teams are in one place at one track um, you know one there's only one yeah. time manufacturer um, to let them do a little bit of running with with you know, new bits and pieces for the cars, and also, um, also to uh, you know to let young drivers yes. have a run. I mean, last year you remember last year. Um, I mean, Jaime Algarshwari, you know, went into his first Grand Prix with really with absurdly little experience, and you know, in the, he coped very well. And so I think it was Hungary, wasn't it, last year? Hmm. Yeah. And he and he coped remarkably well in the circumstances, but I really thought it was asking, you know, a hell of a lot. Because essentially, Friday morning practice, you know, at the Hungara ring, that was, you know, that was Agashwari getting to know a Grand Prix car. And those aren't really the circumstances in which that should be done. I so maybe, right. maybe one, one yeah. single, two, three days, yeah. mid-season test. And you could do it at one of these new Grand Prix venues or potential Grand Prix venues, like the, the Portimao Circuit, which yeah. has been used in the past. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do, do it somewhere yeah, sure, different. Sure. Fantastic um, circuit, yeah. 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 Okay. Um, but, it, I mean, the, the testing ban has, has created some interesting uh, stories. You've got McLaren turning up with a, you know, a, a blown diffuser, yeah. which they haven't been able to test, so they don't find out until in front of the public on Friday. It doesn't work, mm. so they go back to the, the, the old diffuser. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, I, it does I, I, create I agree. You know, a big challenge for the yeah, team. It's just more and more intrigue and excitement, yeah. really. I, I, think, I, think, yeah, I agree yeah. with Nigel. The one mid-season test, uh, particularly to help young drivers, would be, would be good. Because the problem is that if you, if you, if you simply scheduled a mid-season test and said this is simply to give young guys a couple of days in a car, 
uh, and that's the only reason for it and all the rest of it. But you know damn well that the young guys will be getting their first run in an F1 car loaded down with all sorts of new bits and pieces that they didn't even understand. Diffusers but hanging off it in all directions. Yeah, yeah, but, but you know, the engineers, you yeah, know... Yeah, sure. Sure. They, w- they wouldn't miss that chance. That's, no. the, that's the problem with well, it. That's okay. We, we, yeah. are, we, yeah. we, are, we are doing this podcast from a war zone, as you can probably hear in the background. Um, if we are attacked, obviously, we'll be going. Um, Ed, Ed let, me, um, let me put this one to you, Ed. It's quite, a, quite an interesting one from Frédéric Vasser, who is presumably from La France. Um, he, he's... In brief, he's asking whether we think that Mark Webber's openness, apparent honesty, and general matiness is a genuine breath of fresh air or actually a strategy to get the media on his side. Um, well, I suppose in Formula One, you could certainly think that it was a, a strategy, but I think with Mark, he is how, how you see it is, how, how you see he is. Um, he's one of the guys in the paddock that, you know, says it like it is, as Red Bull have found out uh, much to their. As, well, I suppose not amusement this year, but um, no, I think he is one of the. He's definitely one of the drivers who, who's pretty honest and, and straight up. But uh, yeah, I mean they're all there to to win, and as you know, as everyone says, your teammate is your is your biggest enemy. So uh, yeah. I doubt he's that charming to Vettel behind the scenes, but um, you know that, that's how it is. That's the sport. What do you reckon, Nigel? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I think Ed's right. I think, <clears throat> I mean, I think it's. It's a little bit of both. I think, you know, um, it probably, you know, Mark is not unaware that, you know, um, it does get people on his side. But on the other hand, I think he's always, you know, certainly all the time I've known him, he's always been that sort of guy. He's always Mm. been very open and honest. And, I mean, for instance, through all the, you know, the rumpus with with Mosley and... Should he go? Was he bringing the sport into disrepute and all the rest of it? Now, I mean, I can tell you, the entire paddock, with half a dozen exceptions maybe, thought Max Mosley should have gone for the sake of the sport and the disrepute and everything else. Um, But, of course, nobody would say it on record. I mean, that was what they were all saying, but nobody would say it on record. The only guy who did, we have the you know the balls to do it was Mark mm. uh, and it was an especially brave thing to do as well because his boss Dietrich Matasic you know was pretty close to, to, to Max so and I said that to him you know, I said I'm highly impressed you know you, you're actually coming out with this and he just said well my, it's just the way I was brought up mate <laughs> you, you're brought up with certain values and you stick to them as far as Good, I'm yes, concerned quite right. end of story Quite right, good for him. Mm. Okay, we're going to take uh, one more question, and it comes from Jones Racing 82. It's an interesting name, isn't it? Mm. Um, we all remember Jones Racing in 82. Mm-hmm. Don't know who this is, though. Lance Baz, it's him, though, do you? No. Um, anyway, he's really basically asking whether we think that um, the whole sort of comparison between the return of Nicky Lauda and the return of Michael Schumacher, whether there are any... Um, uh, similarities here. He goes on to talk about um, drivers with great car control, and he'd like to see more of them in the magazine and hear more of them on the podcast. Um, this is Jones Racing 82. So, uh, Damien, I mean, surely we can't really compare the two, can we? Or can we? I think there are some parallels. I mean, L- Lauda 
was the dominant driver of the mid 70s and you know he retired with that reputation very much intact as one of the pace setting mm. guys of his era um, and I always thought of Schumacher and Lauder in, in a similar way that they were, they were you know, both Ferrari drivers both very dominant big personalities in their own ways um, and when Schumacher left he was still a serious force to reckon with he comes back and he isn't the force he once was no. Lauder wasn't either um, and I think um, he discovered certainly when he came against Alain Prost that um, he had to recalibrate his way of thinking and the way he, he went about being a Grand Prix driver being the intelligent um, guy that he is he, he came to terms that found a way still to be successful and score, score lots of points and beat Prost to a world championship which is, I think is one of the, the great achievements in, in the sports history to do what he did but he didn't do it through pure speed, speed the way he did it in the first time around yeah. and I'm intrigued now to see if Schumacher is able to take the step that Lauda took and accept the order of things have changed and find a way to, yeah. to, to succeed. Nigel, I mean... <laughs> <coughs> well, there are, I mean, there are... There's Damien quite right. I mean, of course, there are similarities and they were both world champions who retired and came back. Um, I suppose you could make a point of the fact that Nicky... Um, Nicky was away for two years rather than three, more to the point. Yeah. He was only actually 33 years old when he came back. He wasn't 41. So that's probably a you know a factor too. Um, that said, I mean he he came back in '82 when the cars were very strange in '82. Um, near solid suspension, ground effect cars, near virtually no suspension, skirts. Um, very very high cornering speeds, very little feel in the car, which was something new for him. <clears throat> which was something new for him, and he won his third race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was, as as I recall, I think in the first one, I think Watty was quicker than Nicky in the first race. Certainly, I think he outqualified him. But thereafter, you know, Nicky Nicky had it handled. So, you, you, of course, you can't you can't make a direct comparison no. because the times were different and 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 everything else. Um, but what was different was, you know, Nicky did not come back and get. Um, Fundamentally, you know, beaten right. beaten every weekend by his teammates. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And th this is, th I, you know, I I thought I expected Nico Rosberg to have a good season this year because I've I always thought he's underrated. Um. But I confess, I, d I you know I thought there would be races, probably a lot of races, when he was quicker than Michael. I didn't expect it to be quite as um, you know as, as, as absolute as it has been it would be interesting to know wouldn't and it's it? never happened to Michael in his life no you know. this is a new experience yeah it is it'd be interesting to know wouldn't it what Nicky felt about this really because you know he must be looking <coughs> at the situation as well yeah well it's his decision he wants to go on it's up to him Simple as that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, there I you are. You I see came back three years gone. Yeah. And unlike you, Nicky, he, he hasn't come back for money, has he? He's come back because he loves it. <laughs> no, my airline was in trouble, and. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, there you are. You, you, this is what you get from people like great, great 
legends of our sport like Nicky Lauder, you get it straight to the point and that's it. Okay, well, we're nearly, we're nearly time to go now. Uh, but, of course, we, uh, it's important that we look at what's in the, the next uh, new edition of Motorsport magazine that comes out this coming Friday. Only a few days to go until you, you can get your hands on it in the UK and a few more days after that uh, in the rest of the world. So, Damien, I know you're quite excited about this one. Yeah, September issue, a um, few uh, little departures for us. Uh, we're featuring a road car on the cover for the first time in many a year. Um, what we've done, we've gone to McLaren and we've asked them about their new McLaren MP4-12C um, and asked them how F1 expertise and F1 technology has influenced the road cars because we hear a lot about how F1 feeds yeah. into the, the real world. Well, this is a prime example. So I think it's quite an interesting story. Andrew Frankel went down there for us. Uh, Andrew's also got a new section of the magazine dedicated to road cars. Motorsport has a big history of road car road tests with uh, with Bill Body. Uh, we are under attack, aren't we? Now? We are, aren't we? Yes. We are. Anyway, uh, I'll carry on. Um, no, I'm leaving. It's me. Nicky's got Nicky's got a brand new helicopter with three engines on it, or something. Yeah. Okay, um, so hang on, he's coming back. Yeah, here he comes. Um, he won't we, leave. Yeah. So we've got. Um, uh, new road car section with Andrew Frankel, which I think will be, um, I think, interest of interest to all our readers because it, it just gives a, a new perspective on uh, on the road car industry. Um, there's lots of good stuff as usual on on racing. Uh, one of my favourite bits is uh, the third chunk of Nigel's reflections column this month about Patrick Depay, who anyone who remembers Patrick remembers him fondly. Uh, so it's a good piece. He was uh, was it 30 years this uh, this month he was killed. Yeah. August first, yeah, at Hockenheim, yeah. Um, what else? Oh, there's great photos of our young man Ed Foster here in the office, who uh, at Le Mans was a, a tire man for Aston Martin, and uh, had a great opportunity to get inside a team and find out what it's like to work within a, a top team at Le Mans. And Are we jealous of that? Not much. Uh, just a little bit. I mean, I wasn't too jealous of him at the time, actually, because he got he got no sleep because he did it properly. Oh. He didn't do the journalist <laughs> thing of um, you know flaking off at uh, eleven o'clock and coming back at six in the morning or anything. He did actually go through the night, and uh, he looked utterly filthy, covered in in brake dust, dust and uh, uh, tire dust as well. So, good for him. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's good. And, um, Sam, he's also got Sam Hancock, who, who raced for Aston Martin this year. He, he's written a piece for us about his diary. Uh, an experience of being a Le Mans driver and I think it's the best thing I've ever read in terms of mo- a modern driver talking about the experience of racing at Le Mans today Fantastic. It's a really good piece so uh, those are the, the highlights for me good brilliant look forward to it well it's out in just a few days time everybody okay and uh, before we go I've got to tell you that um, if you enjoy these podcasts and I hope hope you are then there's a lot more you can get from us by subscribing to our magazine and it's pretty simple stuff. All you need to do is to log on to motorsportmagazine.co.uk slash 1924. motorsportmagazine.co.uk slash 1924, that being the year in which the magazine started. And take up the special offer. And this is a good offer, actually, because you have 12 months, that's a year of magazines, for £46 sterling. Four six, pretty good, and you get a free five foot Grove Mill chamois leather. Five feet, 
That's a big leather, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, okay. Yes, it is. That's what I'm, okay. It's, 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 I would have thought most of a cow, but. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, uh, look, look, my job is. You my, have to cure it yourself. My, my job, you just get given the cow. My job is to support the magazine I love, and it says here it's a five foot Grove Mill chamois leather, so that's what it is, and it's worth fourteen ninety nine. Anyway, you get the idea. It's a fantastic thing to do to sub- subscribe to this magazine for two reasons. One, you haven't got to remember to go out and buy it every month, and two, you save lots of money and anyway if all that isn't enough you can get two years of magazines for 84 pounds that saves 23 percent and don't forget you get the leather as well you can dry two cars at one time i'd want two leathers for that (laughs) anyway whatever okay i think you get the idea it's a great offer it's a great magazine we love you we hope you love us uh we'll see you next month for another motorsport podcast goodbye motorsport magazine up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com very best in motor racing.